If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And if you were here about a year ago, uh, this passage may be familiar to you. It's the passage I preached uh, exactly one year ago, and we're going to revisit it um, as we revisit this passage and we realign ourselves um, to what Jesus is calling us to. And so, I know you just sat, but please stand with me again as your act of worship and reverence as we read and receive God's holy word. Hear now the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me in a prayer once more? God, bless us as we now listen to your word. We pray for understanding and insight. We pray to be challenged. We pray, Lord, that we seek not just to hear your voice um, individually, but corporately as a body. We're asking not, Lord, what do you have to speak to me? But Lord, what do you have to speak to us? And so do that work in us by your spirit. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it seems like the first Sunday of February has proven to be a very special day in the life and history of Cornerstone. Over and over again, something special is happening on the first Sunday of February. February 4th, 2018. Do you know why that was such an important day in the life of our church? Because that's when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. <laughs> February 3rd, 2019. Do you know why that's such a memorable day in the life of our church? Because that's when we moved into this building and had our first worship. February 2nd, 2020 will be memorable because it'll be the last Sunday that we worship together as one service. And all of that makes me really nervous and excited about what will happen on the first Sunday of February in 2021. But if you're not aware... If you've only come to this church less than a year, we've only been at this church for a year. Today marks the one-year anniversary of moving into this building and into this area. When we moved into this community, uh, we knew that it would increase uh, our opportunities in order to do good gospel ministry. And it, frankly, it's been amazing how in one year the Lord has done more than we could ever imagine. More than we could ever imagine. And yet, here's the reality. Uh, if you told us in late 2018 that we would fill this sanctuary, or pretty much fill it, in one year, uh, and that we would have to move to two services just after one year, I'm pretty sure the search committee would have just kept on searching. Uh, really. And I'm almost certain that if you told the search committee that, um, that they would have probably passed on this building. But if they did propose it, I'm pretty sure then the session wouldn't have considered it. And if somehow a session did consider it, I'm pretty sure the congregation would have voted no on this purchase. And yet, lo and behold, here we are. And so the question is, how did we end up here? 
right? Because it definitely wasn't in our plans and in our schedule to move into a building, do all the renovations, fill up space in a year, and then have to quickly go to two services. But everything ended up this way, not because we are in charge, but because God is in charge. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 3, Apostle Paul reminds his readers that it's God who gives the growth. It's not up to us, it's up to God. In fact, if you remember that whole passage, Paul had written this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, yes and amen, God gave the growth. He grew this church. But notice how Paul can still claim that the growth God gave was based on the labors and the ministry of himself and Apollos. Right? Because Paul could have said, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Nothing. Nobody. God planted. God watered. God gave the growth. And yet in his mysterious providence, God decided that he wanted to use these men and their efforts and their labors in order to bring a blessing to the church through their ministry. Which really reminds us as we move forward, God gives the growth. But he's still calling this church to plant and to water. We must still remain faithful to God's calling, trusting that he uses and he blesses the work and the ministry of his people. And so last year, I preached on Matthew 5, 13 to 16 in a sermon entitled, What the World Needs. And I wanted to, in light of the one-year uh, anniversary, go back and look at this passage to revisit it and to realign ourselves into what this passage is calling us to. And so as we look at this passage, uh, I'm not going to cover what I did last year. If you're interested, you could go into the sermon archives and find that. But today, I just want to focus on two things that I feel Jesus is calling us to. Two things that I want to talk about, our usefulness and our strategy. Two simple things, our usefulness and our strategy. Now first, our usefulness. What do I mean by that, our usefulness? Take a look at verse 13. And here Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now just, I want to bring your attention to two things. The first thing is when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the word you there is plural. It's not a singular you. In the Greek, it's plural. So Jesus is really saying something like, you all are the salt of the earth. Or if you're from the south, y'all are the uh, salt of the earth. Or if you're from south, fairly, you guys are the salt of the earth. The church, God's people, collectively, we are called to be salt. Not just pastors, not just leaders, not just ministry staff. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is called to be salt. So that's the first point. The second is, Jesus chooses to use the salt imagery because salt in this ancient time was very useful. Right? On the one hand, salt was used as a preservative. It kept things like meat and fish from going bad at a time when they didn't have freezers and refrigerators. So it's a preservative on the one hand. On the other hand, salt uh, is a natural seasoning. Salt takes bland food and makes it better. It brings out the flavor of whatever it's put on. Now, of course, you never eat salt uh, just by itself. You know, maybe when you were a kid or you've seen other kids do this, you're at a diner and there's a sugar packet. You know, it's not surprising, you know, to see kids open the sugar packet and either, you know, drink it or put it on and, you know, eat sugar itself. 
in my life, I've never seen a kid pick up a salt shaker and open his mouth and just chug salt. You don't see that. Why? Be be because salt, it flavors and it seasons. And so there, there we go. Salt is useful for two things. It preserves, it flavors, and it seasons. Salt is useful. And therefore, when Jesus calls his people and his disciples salt of the earth, he's saying, you have a purpose and you need to be useful. You need to be useful in my kingdom. Because, in fact, he outright says it. Look at verse 13. I mean, how it continues. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's kind of surprising the directness that he speaks to his people with. Because he's basically saying this. He's saying, you are the salt to the earth. I'm sending you out into the world. Be useful or be thrown out. It's a pretty upfront statement. He's saying, if you're salt and you lose your saltiness and you're no longer useful, why don't you get thrown out? Why don't you get trampled under people's feet? Now think about that for a moment, what Jesus is saying here. And then think about what that means for us as a church, because uh, if anything, it makes us reflect, we are called to be salt. Are we being useful? Are we being useful in the world? Are we actually blessing others? Are we actually sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we actually the hands and feet of Christ in this community? Are we actually extending the love and welcome of Jesus to all those who walk in our doors? Because the reality is you are called to be salt. But we can be a salt that's useless or we can be a salt that's useful and the choice is ours. You know, here's a picture of salt that's useful. It's a dark, cold, wintry night. The roads are slick. The temperatures drop rapidly. And a sheet of ice, barely visible, begins to form over the road and threatens the safety of drivers. And onto those lonely streets where there's not even light, the salt is spread out far and vast. It's dying to itself in order to be useful to others. It's the picture of salt that's useful. On the other hand, is a picture of salt that's useless. It's a well-lit, warm room, a nice fire is going on inside of a house, fighting the freezing February temperatures outside. And in the garage, still sealed in his bag, is a lump of salt huddled together, safe and secure and unbothered, but completely useless. What kind of church are we trying to be? One that is useful or one that is useless? Now, as you think about that question, don't, don't just dismiss that as a question for the leadership and the pastor. Yeah, pastor. Yeah, elders. Yeah, deacons. What kind of church are you helping us be? No, friends, the question is for you. Because it's you all who are the salt of the earth. What kind of church are you helping us be? What kind of church are we becoming together. And as we begin year number two in this building, in this Lansdale community, we cannot lose this sense of mission and purpose. You know, the church doesn't exist uh, only for the benefit of its own members. The church also exists for the benefit of its non-members. And the temptation is really uh, there. It's present. And it's to get comfortable and satisfied with, with where we are and then slowly over time becoming useless as a church. Because look at the growth happening here. This sanctuary was half full. Now it's almost all full. And it's easy to say, you know, God used us once. 
We were useful once. We don't need to be useful anymore. And that's a slippery slope because as soon as you start getting complacent and comfortable, then you start thinking to yourself, you know, I don't, I don't need to invite that friend out to church. Somebody else will. I don't need to welcome that newcomer I haven't seen before. Somebody else will. There's that event going on. Oh, I don't need to volunteer to serve. Somebody else will. That person's been coming out for a while. I don't need to build a relationship with them. Somebody else will. But remember, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. He's not saying somebody else is the salt of the earth. So I encourage you, as we seek to be salt in this community, let us be salt that's useful, not useless, lest we be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So that's the first thing, our usefulness. Here's the second thing, our strategy. Now Jesus uses a second image. He uses the image of light, and he does it to prove a point. And that's the point of being strategic. Now, where am I getting that from? Well, look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And Jesus, uh, whether we pick up on it or not, Jesus is actually painting a scenario that the listeners would have heard and they would have all chuckled. They would have chuckled at the foolishness of a person who would do this because who, only a fool, would light a lamp and then cover it. But everybody knows that in order to give light to all, you have to place it somewhere strategic, somewhere like on a stand or somewhere on a hill. But have you ever had the power go out in your own home? I mean, you, you may have had that. And nowadays, you know, everyone has flashlights on their phone, but before that was possible, if you didn't have a flashlight, you had to light a candle. And if you weren't prepared and you only had one candle, where do you put that one candle? Do you put it in your refrigerator? Do you put it in the bathroom? Do you put it in a closet? No, you put it in the room where everybody is gathered. You strategically place it so that it's beneficial. You put it in the living room, then everyone comes into the living room. It's basic strategy. Now, when we talk about uh, the church and our strategy and our placement, I think some people cringe. Uh, they cringe when we use the word strategy and church because I think, uh, I think people have a negative reaction because strategy is such a word that uh, the world uses. Companies use strategy. Businesses use the word strategy. And, you know, I, I think it's more comfortable to say, you know, the church is an organism, not an organization. So stop talking about strategy. I hear that in my corporate office all day long. It's so unspiritual to talk about strategy. Shouldn't we just pray, trust God, have faith? Well, friends, no, I don't think that's the case at all. Because I think strategy is actually tied to stewardship. It's all about being faithful to God. Let me give you an example. You may be familiar with this parable. At the end of, of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable about the talents. And if you remember that parable, he basically says, uh, there are three servants, and this master is going away, and so the master entrusts these three servants with a different amount of talents. And then after he goes and he comes back after some time, two of those servants have doubled their talents, but the third man hasn't. He hasn't lost any. He's just maintained and kept the same amount. And what's really interesting is how the master responds to them, right? How the master responds. Because when we talk about usefulness, we end up talking about fruitfulness. And some people don't like that language either. Oh, we're not called to be fruitful. We're called to be faithful, but what we actually see is that that is not a fair distinction because Jesus tells us that these two men, two of the servants who were given talents, they doubled it. 
And it says how they doubled it is that they went and they traded with others. They were good stewards of what the master had given to them. They strategized and they went out, they doubled. And so when the master comes back, what does the master say to these servants? If you remember, he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Faithfulness wasn't in just in maintaining and keeping what he had. Faithfulness was in strategizing and investing and in doubling. And then the servant who took that one talent and he buried it deep into the ground, he made no plans to do anything with it. When the master comes back, he picks it up and says, ta-da, here's exactly what you left me. And what does the master say to him? Oh, wow, you were so faithful. No. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. In fact, the master goes on to say, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. He's saying, didn't you just think at all? Because if anything, even if you didn't go out and deal with it, you could have put it in the bank. And when I came back, I could, could have collected at least some interest. But what happened? This man who is unwise and unfaithful, he buried his talent into the ground. He had no strategy for reproduction. Now I bring this parable up because going back to our passage today, if we put a lamp under a basket, that's the equivalent of burying a talent in the ground. And then putting a lamp on a stand so all to see is the equivalent of going out and trading and doubling. Now I say that because as we think about our church, you know, when we moved into this area and we began worshiping at an earlier time, all of these were issues of strategy. That's how we talked about it. We said, we want to be a church that's placed on a stand in order to give more light to those in the house. We don't want to be tucked away in this little business complex of Chalfant, right? That's kind of like being a light under a basket. And by God's grace, he has blessed our move, right? Again, more than we could ever imagine, more than we ever dared hope for. But now that there are many more people in the house, we need to start strategically thinking, okay, well, how can we give more light to them? And this time, our strategy is no longer changing locations. We've already done that. Our strategy now is beginning a second service, starting this 9 a.m. service. And all of this is a matter, I believe, of faithful stewardship. Trying to be wise and position ourselves so we can be light of the world. And I'm hammering this point home. I'm spending time on it because here's what I need and what we need for you to know and understand. Us going uh, as a church, going to this transition and making this move and starting a second service is not merely a pragmatic issue. I know it's really easy to think about it. And in one sense, those are the most convenient reasons. It's pragmatic, right? Obviously, we need more space. But it's not merely a pragmatic issue. It's a strategic issue. It's a stewardship issue. So we don't need our members to just put up with it. Oh, I guess that's what our church is doing. We need our church members to believe in it, to be convicted by it, to be excited by it, to, to own this vision, to promote it. We need to have a biblical vision and a biblical buy-in. Oh, we're doing this because we want to be strategic in reaching out to many more people. Now, as that happens, and here's why it's so important that you don't just put up with it, but that you buy into it. Because as we continue to grow as a church, there's going to be a lot of changes. I mean, there already are so many changes that are happening. 
And last year, right before we moved in uh, to this building in February, in January, I did a short three-week series called Mission Purpose Calling. Um, and in one of those sermons, I was, as I was reflecting on it this week, I preached on 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and, here, and here's what I said then, and I want to say it now because even though I said it a year ago, I think it actually applies a lot more now than it did back then. And so let me just read you this portion. This is what I'd written in and preached last year. For many of you, at one point or another, Cornerstone began feeling less like a church you were visiting and more and more like your church. There was a transition in your heart and mind when Cornerstone became more than a church that you attended and it started becoming my church. And your language began to reflect that. Your comfortability around others grew. You no longer felt like a visitor, but a part of this community. We want everybody in our church to feel this way. We want everybody to have this experience of Cornerstone where we are your family and you are ours. But what often happens in a church is that when things start changing and new things begin happening, over time, the familiar becomes unfamiliar and slowly it stops feeling like your church. Maybe one day you will look around and you won't recognize this as your church anymore. The people will be different. The faces will be unfamiliar. The dynamics will be all over the place and the culture will not be one you've chosen. It won't be the cornerstone you were used to and the cornerstone you always remembered. Now, I said that a year ago. And I bring it up now because if anything, going to two services is one of those transitions that I feel is going to make the familiar start to become really unfamiliar. The comfortable start to really feel uncomfortable when you don't see the same faces and new faces come and challenges come and people start wanting to serve and hey, I've always been serving and that's my way of serving and why are you serving that way? And that's where I sit. You can't sit, you can sit behind me. Don't sit in front of me, you're tall. And all of a sudden, these transitions will make the familiar and things we've gotten so used to so unfamiliar. And that's continually happening right in front of our eyes even now. You know, yesterday uh, morning and this afternoon, we have our membership class. And um, you know, some of you may not know this, but if everybody who attended our membership class yesterday and who attends today, if they all become members within a month, then our membership will increase by 50%. You won't know and recognize everybody. And the transitions may, may be scary, it may be discouraging, it may be alienating. And then this church will no longer feel like it's yours and the changes may seem like they're too much for you. And you will be tempted to withdraw, tempted to disengage, tempted to, to step back and become further and further away from it. And that's gonna be the temptation but if you believe in what Jesus is calling us to here, if you recommit and you're reinvigorated by what Jesus is calling here, then I think it'll actually help you deal with this transition more because we must remember, how are we going to fight against this temptation to withdraw and get too overwhelmed by all the changes? It's to remember our primary identity is to be the light of the world. Now, 
I don't know about you, but whenever I read this passage, one part of me just cringes just a little bit. Because if you're familiar with the whole of the New Testament, it sounds really presumptuous to call us the light of the world. Because if you're familiar with the Bible, Jesus in John 8 says this statement where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's really interesting to say, you know, Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world, and then for us to be told, you are the light of the world, but we're not Jesus, right? But when Jesus said that he was the light of the world, he wasn't just looking around for a metaphor. He wasn't just speaking and thinking, oh, shoot, I have to identify myself with something, and he was looking around, and he saw the sun, and said, well, I'm the light of the world. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus was very intentionally fulfilling a prophecy, there was a prophecy uttered about this servant that God would send in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And God says, I'm going to send this servant. He's going to bring salvation. And so God says about it in Isaiah 49 to this chosen servant. This is what he speaks. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. These words were prophesied about 700 years before Jesus came. And when Jesus comes, he chooses to say, I'm fulfilling that Isaiah 49 passage. I am the light of the world. I came in order to be the light into the nations. I came in order to bring salvation. But more than just to the nations, I came to be bring salvation to you. I broke into your darkness to be your light. And Jesus Christ did this when he came to us by giving up his life for us, by being extinguished and snuffed out so that new light and life could be in you. Now, here's how I think about it. Not a perfect analogy, but I hope it gets the point across. How does a match give light to a dark room? If you strike the match, it'll illuminate the darkness. But that's not the most effective way. Then you take that match and you light as many candles as you have before the match dies out. And in that way, the match is struck and then it dies so that many other candles can be lit and the dark room can be made even brighter. That's what the gospel is. Jesus Christ came as the light of the world and yet for your sake, he was struck on the cross and he died out for your sins. And this was all strategic. Jesus did this so that he could light you up. He did this so that you could become the light of the world and by doing this that the dark world would be lit even brighter. So although Jesus fulfills Isaiah 49 verse 6, Jesus himself is the prophesied light of the world. Apostle Paul and Barnabas have the audacity in preaching in Acts 13 to say this about Christians. He says about us, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, Isaiah 49, verse 6, was both a passage about how Jesus came to be the light of the world. But Paul is telling us it's also a passage how in Jesus Christ we are now the light of the world that Jesus came and he delivered us from sin's punishment. He crucified sin's power in you and he lives in you by his Holy Spirit. And so now together, you and I are called to bring salvation to the ends of the earth as we emanate and radiate with Christ and his light. 
Here's the thing, and I'll close with this. If you've experienced this truth in your life, if you've experienced Christ Jesus come and break into the darkness of your life, then verse 16 becomes your highest priority and your greatest concern and life-giving joy. Because you will let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If the gospel takes grip of you, if you know Christ as the light has come and broken into your darkness and saved you from your sin and has now has turned you into be the light of the world, what will begin to change? Here's what will begin to change. You will participate in the life of the body of Christ differently. You won't come to this church with a consumeristic mindset asking, what can this church do for me? What can this service provide me? What about this location and this time is convenient for me? What encouragement can these people offer me? What friendship can this girl or guy give me? What can my family get out of this? Rather than asking those questions, the gospel as it changes us will transform our concerns and our priorities and our outlooks so that now we'll start asking, how can I be useful in the work God wants me to do? How can I strategically use my presence and my time and my conversations and my relationships and my participation to shine the light of Christ so that others may give God glory? How am I being a steward of my calling to be salt and light where God has placed me? And as the light of the world has come for me, how can I start going out as the light of the world to those God has called me to be with? You know, as we revisit Jesus' calling to us, as we realign ourselves again, um, especially as we begin this new chapter of our story and we enter this new season of our life together, here's what you need to know. You know, friends, God, God has brought us a very long way, but there's still so much further to go. We must remember our calling to revisit and realign ourselves that we're called to be a salt that's useful and a light that's strategic in how we're taking this message of Christ out into the world. Because as much as God gives the growth, God also gets the glory. So let us be faithful unto the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I am thankful that what you have done for us and coming as the light of the world and breaking in, not in, just into the darkness of this world, but breaking into the darkness of our own hearts, that you were snuffed out on the cross, extinguished as you gave up your life so that we might be saved. And now having experienced the joy of that gospel, of the love of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, we know that by your spirit we are transformed. Now you call us to be light of the world. And we go and we are sent out and we engage on your mission, God, in order so that others might see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Help us do that, Lord. And now, God, as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to partake of this family meal, we're thankful that we can eat it together as one family, as one body. And so, Spirit of God, direct our minds and our hearts to you at this time as we come and partake of what you give so freely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, 
and the love of God the Father Almighty who would send his Son to break into the darkness and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who now transforms you to be the light. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, hear the words of dismissal. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks Thanks be to God. Go in peace, dear friends.